The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations and the following message comes from The Guardian Network, a national community of preferred financial representatives and agencies dedicated to helping Americans live with greater financial confidence through a collaborative planning approach. Does it surprise you that Americans across all income levels are seriously stressed? How confident or stressed are you? Find out where you stack up by taking the Living Confidently quiz at livingconfidently.com forward slash confidence. Welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I'm joined today by Randy Norton, someone with a very impressive and varied uh, career. Mr. Norton is a managing partner at the, and the global head of real estate and alternative investments at Green Mesa Capital. Prior to that, uh, he was a partner and head of investment research at National Capital Partners, a real estate and private equity fund targeting distressed assets and note purchases. He has also been an entrepreneur. He started Motivox, a customized VOIP video conferencing software for file sharing and online collaboration that eventually evolved into a partner of Microsoft. Before that, he worked on the Korean Olympic Committee during the Salt Lake 2002 Winter Games that led to a stint working for Korea Petroleum. He is a graduate of Brigham Young University's Marriott School of Management with honors in Korean and business, and has also completed executive programs at Harvard and Columbia. He is the forthcoming author of the pending book, Applied Value Investing in Real Estate, and has some fascinating ideas about how value investing in real estate can coexist. Welcome to the show, Randy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Absolutely. So impressive rap sheet you've got there, sir. Uh, Tell us something about you, though, that doesn't show up on the formal bio, something interesting about you and who you are. Well, I've always tried to be an overachiever, I guess, at the age of 13. On my 13th birthday, I received my Eagle Scout Award. And the background to that is uh, my dad told me that I could drive as soon as I got my Eagle Scout. And so I got it early. Oh my gosh. Now I, on the other hand, was a life scout with all of the merit badges appropriate to get an Eagle and never finished my Eagle project. So where you are a vast overachiever, I am a a failure who never quite crossed the finish line. <laughs> so my dad, my dad, who was my scoutmaster, is I think ashamed to this day that I never took it that last yard. So it is tougher than people realize. I think if I did not get it when I did, Daniel, I probably would have never got it myself. You know, starting about the age of fourteen or fifteen, you just get really busy with other activities. So I'm lucky and fortunate I got it done. It's very, it's very impressive. It, it really is. So tell us a bit about Green Mesa. Tell us a bit about your current gig and, and what led you to where you are today. Sure. Um, Green Mesa Capital is a single family office based in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas. And what that means is I invest the capital for one particular individual. Um, and 
there's two sides of the house. One is um, marketable securities and public equities. And then there's the other side of the house, which is alternative investments and real estate, which I take lead on. So I'm more into the project financing um, as well as um, reviewing different fund manager ideas. And every now and then um, backing a FinTech or a Realtech technology. And so Green Mesa Capital came along about in 2013, 2014. And um, one of my largest investors that I've worked with for a very long time said, hey, I, uh, I would really like to work with you and I trust you. I'm trying to um, myself get out of California and, and get into Nevada. If you meet me halfway and come to Nevada, you know, we can do this together. And I said, absolutely. I, so it was a dream come true. And one of the reasons why we chose Nevada over any other area in the United States is there's no state income tax. Um, it's one of the best territories in the world for estate planning. And surprisingly enough, there's a lot of wealth down here, Daniel. There has been an influx of family offices migrating here from all over the globe, but specifically leaving California. And just by moving from California to Nevada and clearing the nexus, which is you know, the majority of our assets or the majority of our residency being in Nevada, we're saving about 13.25% a year on our state income tax. And that alone is a great return. People, people consistently underestimate the power of tax alpha, I think. And, you know, sometimes when I'll, when I'll talk to my wife, we'll sit down and do our budgeting and say, okay, how can we do better? How can we save more? Uh, and, you know, rather than cutting out out to eats or lattes or whatever, I say, look, if, if we really want to save money, we should move one state up or one state down because missing that state income tax is just a huge a huge boon. You're, you're absolutely right. And just a, one more um, comment on Nevada. You have, of course, the hockey team that's here now, and you have the Raiders that are here. And when that happened, this became one of the bona fide 32 cities that institutional allocators would consider as far as real estate investments go. So now Las Vegas is, you know, basically its own little country having a lot of foreign direct investment, if you will, coming directly into the uh, Clark County. And one of the case studies that we used in deciding this was actually the very largest hedge fund in the world. And many are surprised when learning that's probably Apple Inc. They actually have all of their money managed out of Reno by a firm called Braeburn Capital. And, um, you know, if Apple's doing it, and many others are doing it, then it's good enough for Green Mesa to do it. <laughs> I like it. Be, be proud of where you're from. A very nice, uh, a very nice bit of, a uh, very nice commercial for Nevada. So uh, I have, you know, three young children. My, my oldest daughter is uh, in fourth grade now. And next year, we're looking forward to this stock market game she gets to be a part of as part of her gifted and talented course in school. And so we're already talking about, you know, this piece of her learning about the public equity markets uh, in fifth grade. And I went through something similar when, when I was in elementary school. But 
Whereas so many people know about public equity markets, you've been drawn to, to other asset classes and real estate in particular. Uh, what appealed to you about real estate versus other asset classes that perhaps grab, grab more press and more headlines? Well, I'll tell you what, my true love and joy is public equities. Um, I have a very bitter love-hate relationship with real estate. It's a very litigious industry. But because there's so much um, 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 variance in information, there is an opportunity to take advantage of you know um, different subsets or subproperty types in a specific market just because of the lack of information. So, be, so information becomes a competitive advantage in real estate, and it's the most multidisciplinary sector I could find where I could encompass a little bit of my investment background, technology, research. Um, and then in real estate, you know, if you look at it, it's one of the very largest global sectors, um, you know, as far as GDP and every other measurement of an asset class. Um, I don't even want to guesstimate what it is now, but when I was in school, that was about 14 trillion annually. And you just think of all of the um, um, the follow-on dollars that are circulated into the economy from the real estate sector. It's just enormous. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And I always felt that um, the institutional um, aspect of real estate was missing. There was a lack of professionalism. And over the last 20 years, that's changed greatly with uh, groups like the Institutional Real Estate um, the real estate information standards, which is a subset of GIPS, the global investment performance standards of the CFA society. And I think in general, um, it's getting better across the board, but for a very long time, and it still continues to be, um, an insider's game, meaning, you know, in real estate, you can actually benefit from inside information, whereas in the stock market and anything other, any other security, you know, you're penalized for that. So that is one of the many reasons that attracted me to real estate. But from um, a fund manager standpoint, Daniel, I always thought the two and 20 was ridiculous. And I also have looked at other fund managers besides Warren Buffett. And they just don't, it takes them a very long time to amass wealth. And so from a return on equity and a multiple standpoint, if you can be vertically integrated in the real estate area, such as being your own, you know, developer and, and basically wiping out those third party fees, I believe that this is the very best place you can actually uh, create wealth, both from an individual standpoint, as well as from a company standpoint. And when you start reinvesting those retained earnings, Daniel, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about compound interest. And we have a little moniker inside. We're, our hashtag is, you know, the eighth wonder of the world, which is compound interest. Mm -hmm. But we're considering, you know, ninth wonder of the world because we want to do it at a tax-free rate. And um, that would be the ninth rate. That would be the ninth wonder of the world as if, if you could compound interest at a, at a tax-free rate. Fantastic. Uh, do you see that informational edge getting eroded at all? I think, you know, I think about public equity markets and over time, there's been greater and greater interest and greater and greater transparency and technology. And as that's become the case, 
you know, the informational edges of certain institutional investors have been eroded. Do you see anything that, that forebodes that for the real estate world? Not at all. In fact, I think the gap is widening. The data and the information is not asymmetrical. The experience and wisdom is always changing. You know, you always have newcomers and new entrants coming into the market that um, may have less experience. I think the only competitive advantage people can have is number one, ex- uh, execution. And I guess the other thing is the only th- other thing that's proprietary in my mind is balance sheet and you know finances. And people just don't put the time in necessary, Daniel, to really understand the market now. Just here's one example. It is a very local business. If you were to come into Las Vegas and, and say, hey, Randy, where do you want to invest? I'd say, I don't know. I don't even know the market here. We don't even have any assets here. But I can tell you it's neighborhood specific. I wouldn't go to North Las Vegas. I wouldn't go to Las Vegas proper. I mean, there's a few specific streets that I would invest in. And I think people miss that. And so there's four things that I recommend You know, that were relayed to me a couple years ago at one of the counselors of real estate um, meetings in Salt Lake City. And one of the institutional um, um, consultants said, number one, you know, in this market, you know, and at that time, everyone thought that it was, you know, the end of the real estate cycle. She said, number one, you got to choose the right asset class, you know, whether that is commercial real estate, multifamily, retail or whatever. Secondly, uh, you got to um, pick the right market, whether that's New York City, San Francisco, Florida, or whatever. Um, and then thirdly, you got to have uh, the right structure. And at the end of the day, that structure is incredibly important to be successful. You got to be in total control of your destiny. And um, I don't remember the fourth one. But the point was, is it's all about structure and you can go into any market and be successful, but you got to pick the right sub market and you got to have the right structure in every single deal. So you and I originally connected over a fascinating book that you are writing in the process of getting published that applies the principles of value investing, a, a, a philosophy of which we are both a big fans to real estate investing. And this is something I've never seen done before. And I'm very much looking forward to reading this. So value investing in a nutshell is paying a good price for a great company. Uh, We know a bit about how to do that in public equity markets, but how do you go about measuring both fairness of price and greatness of property uh, in this new environment? Well, I don't want to... um give too many trade secrets away as to what we're doing, but I can give you some of the macro trends and, and how our search methodology got us to the point where we are today. Value investing is right. You're, you're exactly right. It's about creating um, a margin of safety in everything you buy, whether that's a, a public security or whether that is a, an asset, a company, And in real estate, you really have four um, categories. You have the public equities, you have the public debt, and those are typically both REIT structures. And then on the project finance side, you have private equity 
and private debt. And through searching the public markets, the 10Ks and, the, and following the REITs and how they're making decisions, you can absolutely create um, a strategy to implement on the ground from a private real estate standpoint. And there is absolutely a lag, I would say, of anywhere between six and 18 months of what REITs are doing in the capital markets to what actually ends up happening on the ground. So it's all about your search methodology. And, you know, if you were to tell me that um, I, I needed to go buy or build um, retail, you know, malls right now, uh, I'm not going to do it. But if you told me to potentially look at doing something um, as far as a, a retail um, experience on the strip, I would absolutely look at it because from a price per square foot basis, the number one grossing rent um, um, location in all of the world is actually right here in Las Vegas. And it is the Jimmy Buffett restaurant, uh, Margaritaville. And you would just not know that, you know, unless you had experience and if you had research. And so would you want to overpay just a little bit, you know, as Charlie Munger would for a great company to be at that location for that restaurant? Absolutely. And so when you look at margins of safety, you're looking at a margin of safety with the multiple, the cap rates, you know, your interest rate, the terminal values. You're looking at um, if there's rent growth, you're looking at if there is um, investment grade credit behind that um, lease. And you're looking at all of these factors and you synthesize it into one output. But there's so many reasons that you can kill a deal. And those also take experience and filters and checklists. And so what investing, I don't, I don't think I've seen a textbook or anybody apply the canon of, val of value investing into a specific subset uh, industry or an asset class. And, and what's happening now is the Columbia Business School and the Columbia University Press is trying to create more subspecialties um, in, this, in this area of applied value investing. And real estate just happens to be one of the next ones we're going to do. So there's a lot of information arbitrage going on in real estate. I would say more than any other industry, Daniel. Hmm. In a million years, I never would have picked Margaritaville. Uh, that was a really, really fascinating tidbit and shows how, how counterintuitive this can be and how, uh, how understanding that and understanding value investing can, can lead us to look in unexpected places. Uh, so Randy, what, what behavioral traps do real estate investors tend to fall into? You know, a lot of my writing and thinking has been around the, the, behavioral traps that equity investors fall into. How similar or different is this in, in your world? Oh my goodness. It is so bad. You have so many untrained professionals in this industry. That's why so many people lose money in real estate. Um, not only is this the most multidisciplinary asset in the world, it's the most illiquid. And I believe that's why it's an alternative asset is it's so hard to manage. Yet there's so much value that can be created if you de-risk it and structure contracts correctly. They can be much safer and predictable than a public equity. Now, you're not going to have the same growth year over year or the same returned, uh, retained earnings function or 
other aspects of valuation, but you will have rent growth, you will have appreciation, you will have, you know, therefore NOI growth. And if you can manage your expenses, you're going to, you know, continually increase your coupon and, and your profit yield on cost. What people I think run into in this industry to, to be very specific to your question is they lack the experience and insight across multiple asset classes. They basically try to fit a square peg into a round hole on every single deal going forward. They keep trying to do one thing and, and you know, that dog only has so many tricks, you know, and you can't uh, just continue. You got to continue to increase your arsenal and, and expertise and what you can implement. So I would say that, you know, there's a second level thinking that is totally absent in this industry. And, um, you got to, the very first thing I ask myself every time I see a deal is I say, why me? Why is Randy Norton and Green Mesa Capital seeing this deal in Belize, for example, and we're here in Las Vegas, Nevada? Well, probably it's because no one else in New York wanted to do it and nobody else, you know, with that specific hotel experience thought it was good enough. And now they're going to the next tier of, you know, unsophisticated investors. And so real estate is, you know, something I remember learning at BYU. Uh, Don Livingston was my real estate teacher there. He said, there's this idea in real estate where it's the greater fool theory. Who's the greater fool, you know, the seller or the buyer. And typically when it comes to the development and construction of a specific real estate development, it's the second, third or fourth developer that finally, you know, makes it a success. And um, we all know that the markets can stay um, irrational longer than we can. And real estate typically has been a very cyclical industry. You know, the business cycle is typically six years, but the real estate cycle is about 20. And it's a very counterintuitive thing that you got to measure carefully. And there's great research out there, but people just don't know where to look. And so some of the other things that just people don't do in this industry is they don't have filters. And they chase every single deal that comes across their desk. For me, if I don't know you, you know, you're not even going to get an email response. If I know you, I'm going to ask for a one paragraph summary. If that makes sense, I'm going to ask for a one page summary. If that one page summary makes sense, I'm going to therefore go after the financial model and assumptions. But I try to kill every single deal that comes my way. And lastly, it's, it's checklists. It's due diligence checklists. It's term sheet checklists. It's closing checklists. It's you know, equity structure checklists, debt checklists. And any one of those variables that is missed can kill you. But if you can execute again, Daniel, it's one of the more profitable businesses in the industry from a return on equity standpoint. So it sounds like you're using a lot of the tools that that I'm I'm preaching about as well in the in the public equity markets, right? Asking what's my edge, uh, why might why might I be wrong? You know, uh, conducting a pre mortem if this is to if this is to fail, how would it fail? All of those things, uh, human irrationality uh, looks the same, perhaps in, in many respects across asset classes, and that overconfidence and that that impatience persists. Uh, even in an asset class that's not as liquid. Um, so you you talked uh, about this 20-year cycle versus the six or seven-year cycle we see in equity markets. You know, it's a behavioral tendency of ours to fight the last war and fall prey to, to recency bias. 
So as such, I'm hearing a lot from retail investors and even some financial advisors who, who are getting worried about real estate. So what are your thoughts on uh, whether or not this is the right worry to have and where we might be in that 20-year cycle? Um, well, just the other night, I um, was at a UNLV um, lead institute for the studies of real estate dinner, and we had the global head of Morgan Stanley's research come in as well as the global head of research for CoreLogic come in. And I also sat on a Wells Fargo um, call yesterday. And nobody is showing signs of stress or worry um, from an institutional perspective. Now, you know, there's also that institutional imperative where institutions have to deploy money. And so value is, quote unquote, just a relative measure. I remember um, some individuals at Oak Tree mentioning that. Uh, earlier this year at one of the conferences. And I thought, how interesting. No matter if the market is up or down, you know, people think that there's ways to make money. And then to a certain extent, I agree with that. Um, however, from what we're doing from our perspective, you know, we've made all of our money in data centers uh, globally. And we see that space getting very hyper competitive with, you know, Microsoft, Azure, um, AWS. Uh, you got Apple and every other uh, company is going to the cloud and our margins are continually being, um, you know, hit. So we're now going to the cloud. We're developing on the cloud and providing infrastructure as a service on the cloud. And we have a team of about 30 programmers that just do this exclusively. But we're staying ahead of the trend is my point. And others are trying to get into the data center space. I think it's the wrong time. Same thing with retail. Um, I think that unless it's experiential, you're going to be wiped out. You know, e-retailing and with Amazon, you just can't compete. Big box retail is not ever going to be the same. Um, if you're looking at commercial office, unless it's a very long-term 20-year credit tenant, I'm not even looking at it. I don't want a multi-tenant building where I have to release it every couple of years. It's ridiculous. You can't even find great financing for that. Um, however, maybe some things that might be interesting is, hey, Americans are pack rats. Uh, the storage, the self-storage space, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep monitoring that. And most, but not, definitely not least, is we have a crisis uh, on our hands with affordable housing. And this isn't just a crisis here in Nevada, Daniel. It's not just a southwestern United States thing. It's not just a United States thing. This is a global crisis. And what Green Mesa Capital wants to do is from a social responsible, you know, investment standpoint, we absolutely want to be a part of the solution. And so what we're doing on a go forward basis is we are going to start developing and constructing some of the most green, sustainable, technologically advanced workforce housing in the world. And some of the stuff that we're doing incorporates smart cities and some of our vendors include, but are not limited to companies like Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, Siemens, and we are bringing the technology to the user. And that user is going to have such a unique experience. And frankly, that phone of his or hers is going to be the remote control of, of that person's life. And we want to have an app that is totally automated and seamless that controls their entire life, whether that's making payments online, controlling the blinds, security features, 
um, heat mapping sensors, security, accessing the building, inviting friends through you know different access points. We're going to be doing things that have never been done that we're aware of in the United States. And this goes back to a little bit of my background in Korea. The South Korean Peninsula is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world because it's a very small country to implement infrastructure. So they've had 5G for years, for example. Um, but they've been doing these smart buildings and smart city concepts for years. And I'm kind of leaning on them for experience and, and, and advice. And we're bringing that over here now to the United States. What, what do you see as the genesis of the affordability crisis in, in, in residential housing? There was a big article in Atlanta here this week uh, talking about, you know, in just the three years I've lived in Atlanta, rents are uh, up about 33%. And this is in a, a city that by, you know, large American city standards is considered affordable. What, what's driving this, this crisis that you mentioned? Oh, I don't know. I think it's been compounding, you know, in a negative way over the last 50 years. And we're just losing housing stock. Um, you know, first of all, we need to understand some of the macro statistics. Basically, 31 to 41% of all homes in the United States are for rent. 31% is the national average. Here in Las Vegas, that number's 41%. If you look at what they're renting, you know, some of these houses should be um, condemned. And so when you start looking at that as a fact, and then you realize that um, over 40 million Americans are cost burdened, meaning they're spending more than 30% of their income on rent, we have a massive problem. They have barely any money left over to live. And so what we're doing is come up, we're, we're basically going to amenitize and modernize the multifamily experience. So it is almost like a resort experience and integrate the different various communities, whether it's, uh, you know, low income workforce housing, you know, college students, age inspired. We know that if someone comes to our community that we want to have a, a specific unit that he or she can afford. And you know what? If a millionaire wants to live on our property and he wants to pay for additional upgrades, um, we have that too. And what's missing here is there's a total bifurcation, I think, of assimilation. You're pushing these people that can't afford rents out into the far suburban areas um, where there's lack of transportation and access to jobs. And that's why I'm in favor of urbanization and accessibility. And so you're starting to see a lot of cities give transit-oriented communities density bonuses and difficult development bonuses so that we can incorporate uh, some of this need. But it's such a chronic issue. In fact, uh, just this morning before we got on this call, Harvard just came out with another joint study that said not only are we having a chronic issue with affordable housing, but now the global sums, the, the, I'm sorry, the global slums are compounding. And it's um, just like polio was the last century, we believe affordable housing and um, workforce housing is the solution to some of the global slum crisis. And we want to be a significant part of that, Daniel. And I think we can. Mm. It's, inc it's incredible work you're doing. Home is, 
home is such an important piece of a happy life. And if you can get that right, so much else falls in place. I spoke with a, uh, an expert, a uh, financial wellness expert today, uh, earlier today, who talked about this 30% number and how many people were spending more than 30% of their income on housing. And if you could help get it below there in a way that preserves human dignity and pres- provides this resort type experience, I think you you will have done important work. So uh, many of the listeners to this show will be average investors, retail investors who are looking for exposure to real estate, uh, but perhaps don't know how best to go about that. So for the average investor, uh, are you more of an advocate for investing in a REIT or do you suggest that they, they get this more directly through owning a rental property or a second home? Wow, that's a really good question. First of all, if you are not a real estate professional, I would not invest in real estate, um, period. There's so many ways that you can lose money. Um, real estate is actually a tax shelter. There's so many benefits you can get from real estate. So if you were to buy a home and rent it, I think that's fine. You know, if you, know, if you remember that 31% of all homes are rented, you know that you're going to always have a demand So, you know, there's really five aspects to real estate. You have appreciation, of course, if you buy it at the right price. You have the depreciation. You have the income that comes from monthly rent, but you got to back out your uh, debt, of course, your debt payment, but you have income. And then if you buy it right at the end, you have capital gains. And if you do it right, you can do it through a tax-free advantaged uh, structure such as a 1031. And so I'm not aware of any other investment type that gives you all five of those levers. Typically, it's one. Now, sometimes you can invest in like a master limited partnership and those K-1 features will pass through to you. Sometimes REITs have a unique structure where there's a, a PREF and or a dividend. And let's face it, they are very diversified and they're very good at what they do. But again, real estate is a very local business. And um, if you're just trying to get into it, you know, I don't think everyone has to own their own home. I rented for years until I found exactly what I wanted and I was a real estate professional. I found that the home to be a liability um, and I knew that if, if I bought at the time, I was overpaying. And so, so many people have this ego and hubris that they need to be diversified in real estate. No, they don't. You know, Warren Buffett has taught us time and time again, just get an index fund like the Vanguard Index that has the very lowest fees and you'll outperform everybody, including you and me as managers. Now, what I can do to increase my return on equity is to either cut out fees from third parties like contractors, developers. Um, I can save on legal fees because of repeat business that I know that, you know, exactly what I'm doing. And by doing so, I'm creating an alpha for the family that I serve. But I don't know if I could necessarily do that even for myself. And so my advice to them would be, you know, it's less important about asset allocation I think it's more about structure of your investment. You know, they need to make sure they're not paying fees. They need to be be sure that they're not paying carried interest. 
and everything that they go into, whether it's a stock bond or an alternative investment, and hopefully they're not doing alternative investments, that they're creating stuff that's called equity bond investments. In 1977, Warren Buffett probably wrote the greatest article of all time with Carol Loomis in, um, in Fortune magazine. And he came out with the notion that equity bonds are what make people rich. And he was giving the analogy of the obligation of pension funds, how they have to pay out basically call it 7% a year um, to their beneficiaries and how that was depleting their resources and basically forcing investment uh, decision changes. And um, whereas if you could invert the process and you can say, hey, um, or if you look at a bond for any bond, for, for example, you know, if it's a 10 year bond um, at the end of 10 years, you're going to have nothing except 10 equal payments and ordinary income tax. But if you can invert the process, Daniel, and say, hey, I'm going to invest as an equity participant in a, an investment vehicle that is increasing my coupon year over year whether that's through dividends or NOI, and it's in a tax-advantaged way, then it's going to compound. And so an equity bond is something where um, it's structured with bond-like tendencies as far as safety goes, but you have all of the upside benefits. And that, I think, is what's important for every investment that you look at. You, you bring up a great point, I think. You know, I think so many people feel like owning a home is, you know, A, this financial great decision, and B, just part of what it means uh, to be an American or part of what it means to, you know, to have arrived. And, and when I look at some of the greatest financial mistakes I've ever made, they've, they've been around real estate. And I think when people, uh, people have just enough exposure to real estate to be dangerous. Like it's just, uh, just enough a part of our daily lives that we think we know what to look for and we think we know how to do it and, and we don't quite. So I, I like this idea to be extremely careful and, and even to rent and, and wait for that fat pitch as, as Buffett and others uh, have taught us. So Randy, what, what would you say as we begin to close up today, I want to uh, leave people with some actionable uh, steps that they can take what would you say is a book or a book or an idea that changed your life that you would recommend to other people? Um, well, when it's uh, about the real estate industry, I think that one of the very best written books um, is the greatest trade ever by Gregory Zuckerman. He meticulously documented how John Paulson um, made money during the financial crisis. And this is exactly my sentiment today on how to go into every single deal. You have to have an information advantage. If it's just a normal book on investing, I would argue that the very best investment book ever written is probably the Warren Buffett way. Um, anything by Robert Hackstrom is just excellent. But even recently, I reread Tap Dancing to Work. It was given to me by a good friend of mine, Jonathan January, who's a CFA. And Carol Loomis documented all of her articles that she wrote and co-wrote with Warren Buffett. And she gave the context behind each article. And that book may be the greatest collection of op-ed pieces around. Um, and then if it's a, just a 
you know, a personal development standpoint, I think what um, Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits, all of his material is fantastic. And Jim Rohn, um, you know, leading a wonderful life. I mean, he's, he's one of my uh, all-time favorites. But I have a library that is very vast and diverse. Um, and every year we create a reading list for our interns. And I'd be happy to share that with you. That'd be great. Well, I'm happy to link to that list as part of the show notes. I think you're part of the proud t- tradition of, of value investors who look at value investing as a liberal art and as a, as a sort of religion and a way of life. And so it is really more about the dollars and cents. It's about self-improvement and, and human psychology and making better decisions. So as a final, as a final aside, as a question, you know, I, one of your heroes, you've talked about him a lot, is Warren Buffett. He's known for his folk wisdom and for his witty aphorisms, simple phrases that sum up important truths. Uh, are, is there a witty aphorism either of his or someone else's or your own that guides how you think about real estate investing? Yeah, you know, I have several, but one that I want to share with you that I just uh, thought of yesterday when um, I saw another person, you know, not honor a contract. And that is this, karma does not forget your address. <laughs> you really got to treat people well, and it will always come back to you. And, um, you know, <laughs> Warren Buffett, I think that's what's so unique about him is not only does he have a photographic memory and he's encyclopedic, but he is just so darn funny and witty. And that's a competitive advantage he has. I, I can't think fast like that on my feet. <laughs> so Randy, this has been wonderful. I think you've given us a lot to think about. If people want to learn more about your work, I'll learn more about your book. How can people seek you out, find you online? Well, you know, we don't really do a lot of marketing. I don't manage anybody's money besides the one family that um, Green Mesa Capital is a fiduciary to. But LinkedIn is a real easy one. And our website is greenmesacapital.com. And there's a contact section there that, you know, people can reach out to. I'm always happy to connect with students and people who are wanting to get into the real estate industry. If anything, I just want to give them some guideposts and some signposts as to not, you know, losing money. Number one, you just can't lose money. And if there's any way I can help others do that and learn from my past mistakes, um, I'd be delighted to do so. So you heard it here. Reach out to Randy if you're looking to learn more about how to get into this industry uh, and follow him on LinkedIn for news about his uh, forthcoming book, which I know I'm very excited to take a look at. Randy Norton, thank you so much for your time today. Likewise, I look forward to doing this again with you. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Thanks. opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal 
tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon the information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.